Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTC and host. Thanks for listening. All right, we are here at day three of AOC 2023, the 60th Annual International Symposium and Convention. This is the third and final day of our annual show. And as you know, From the Crow's Nest podcast has been here each day with new episodes. And so we are pleased to bring you the final episode of this convention. And I have the pleasure of sitting down with this morning's keynote speaker, Vice Admiral Francis Morley, U.S. Navy. He is the Principal Military Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. I also had the chance to sit down with AOC Senior Analyst once again, Matt Thompson, to discuss his insights and takeaways from the last day's breakout sessions and technical sessions, including a technical panel that he helped chair on day two. So looking forward to speaking with him in here in a few minutes. All right, I'm, I'm pleased to be, be here with my guest for day three of AOC 2023, our keynote speaker this morning, Vice Admiral Francis Morley. He is the Principal Military Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. Um, we had the pleasure of having Admiral Morley on AOC webinars earlier this year, and it was great to have him back here uh, at the convention to share a little bit more about the, the pathway the Navy is taking uh, on EW. Uh, so, Admiral Morley, thanks for joining me here on From the Coast. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, Ken, thanks a lot. Glad to be here. And uh, just to note, uh, probably have the longest title in the world, and I saw you had to look, uh, look on the phone <laughs> to get it, which exactly, I yeah. do too. So yeah, that, That's good. Uh, no, no matter how many times you, you prepare for it, it's always good to have that little verification right in front of you. Um, great, great presentation this morning. You hit on a lot of topics, and we won't have time to get to everything today, but really at the beginning, just to kind of set the context, you know, a lot of what you're doing or everything that you're doing now uh, in, in your leadership role with the Navy is to make sure that our fleet is ready for uh, is ready for what we're facing on, in terms of strategic competition around the world. And a number of our guests earlier this week, you know, we, we've talked a lot about this concept of strategic competition. It's, it's a lot different today than it was uh, decades ago. Um, and it weaves its way through every sector of society and, and, and economy and so forth. So I wanted to start off with getting your perspective on strategic competition today and how that has influenced your your role in the Navy in terms of what you need to accomplish in your portfolio? Yeah, it's a good uh, question to start with. I think it, uh, it, it's, it's really influencing um, everything in a lot of ways, or it should be, right? So, you know, we, uh, most of us and most everyone that's in the professional world right now grew up in a world that was uh, a post-Cold War, non-existential threat environment. And so that drove a lot of how we thought and how we set up policies, and they were all correct for the time. It was relatively low risk. It was very deliberate. Uh, it was very uh, efficient. 
set up like that. But uh, as we realize, as the national security establishment of the U.S. and many other, probably seven years ago or so, kind of flipped over. It didn't happen overnight, but kind of flipped over and said, you know what? We are no longer in that environment. We are back in what would be a normal strategic competition uh, environment. It really, we started on a path of changing how we're doing things, sense of urgency, thinking and acting and operating differently. How do we uh, bring capability faster uh, into, the, uh, into the world? Where's our risk tolerance? Do we uh, have a higher risk tolerance uh, in order to do that? So that's uh, you know, coloring a lot of what we're trying to do. And, and, and it must be real, extremely difficult on a, even just a day-to-day basis to understand that risk, risk tolerance. Um, and, and obviously that impacts how we go about our international partnerships. And of course, that's the theme of the convention is the international partnerships and alliances. Uh, could you talk about how that has been shaping uh, your view of strategic competition, the Navy's uh, you know, portfolio uh, moving forward? No, absolutely. So, you know, I had the... Uh, great fortune prior to this job to uh, lead the, the uh, security cooperation uh, world within the Navy and Marine Corps and, uh, and so during this kind of sea change of thinking. And so uh, a couple of thoughts on that, one of which is that uh, certainly a recognition, and we've always had this, but uh, it's become more acute, is that uh, historically those who have the most friends tend to win, mm-hmm. whether that's the playground uh, or certainly in history throughout uh, navies and uh, and the like. So, so we recognize that uh, we cannot do what we want to do, keep the global order, keep free trade, uh, keep our way of life, etc., without our friends and partners and allies. And that, quite honestly, is one of our most strategic advantages that we have uh, when you think of future competitors. So that has become, and you see it in every defense document that exists, that's allies and partners is one of the top three areas. So that's been a huge focus area. Then when you get a little more tactically, that drives a change in risk tolerance. Because again, when we didn't have a competitive threat, uh, we could afford to be conservative in release of technology, uh, sharing of stuff. Well, let's not, let's be careful, let's be deliberate, let's not let anything out of the house that we may inadvertently not want. Uh, Well, that risk tolerance line has to change. Mm -hmm. And so the lower risk option today oftentimes is provide the capability to close partners and allies to provide that additional capacity uh, out there in the world and live with some of the risk uh, that might be for the things that we are concerned with, with technology proliferation. That then takes a cultural change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I alluded to it in my opening remark, but the, and that's tough because I realize people, people have been taught by their mentors and everything they know is the process and procedures they brought up with. And for some new guy to come in and say, you're doing that wrong, you need to do it differently. That doesn't fly. And what I realized what really resonated because it's true is as I, as we've been able to explain it to folks going, look, what you grew up with and learned is not wrong. It was right for the time. The time has changed, and therefore what we do is have to change. That really unlocked a lot of creative energy. Yeah. Um, and, and so now in your portfolio, uh, you, you went through and you talked just about a tremendous number of different programs and capabilities. Um, I, and, and I don't want to 
minimize it in any way, but I think you summed it up greatly is you, 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 your job is to get stuff done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you went through and gave some really interesting numbers uh, and, and I don't have them all, but you know, you're talking about 200,000 plus contracts in the last year so, and, 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 and uh, the, the large quantity and number of contracts and the competitive contracts and so forth. Um, could you give us a little perspective on how that has developed in recent years in terms of from when you've ascended to this position, um, because those numbers were kind of mind-boggling, quite frankly, in terms of the scope that the Navy is involved in. Um, could you give some context on that, uh, on, on what you're working on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, I think your uh, description of my job was pretty accurate, right? Uh, I think about that. It's it's uh, you know I don't do policy too much. I execute policy. Yeah. I try to get things done. Uh, move the ball down the field, solve the problems, reduce the barriers, um, all that sense of urgency, that type of uh, type of uh, really grunt work, quite honestly, in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, some of the numbers I talked about uh, is that, and, and this is not an atypical year, but, you know, in FY23, the Department of the Navy, from an acquisition material side, obligated over $150 billion out to industry uh, in order to develop capability and to produce capability. That was done in over 200,000 contract actions uh, on that. So that's a lot of work. And then we competed over 59 billion of that uh, dollars and 67% of that, of the overall actions were in a competitive environment. So that just shows you volume Mm -hmm. of of effort. That is um, What's driving a lot of that is this sense of urgency. We're far from perfect. It's still uh, a slog to get a complex contract through for many reasons, looking out both for the fine, fair, and reasonable between for the taxpayer and for the industry. Um, so I'm not claiming any great breakthroughs there, but there are many mechanisms uh, in order to keep things moving. Uh, Yucas and other transaction authorities and these type of things. And when you look at what we've been able to do as a nation very rapidly for Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, it shows you that we have the ability when it's a priority to move the system quickly. Yeah. And you, you talked a little bit about, you know, your, your goal in terms of in injecting technology in, into the hands of the warfighter faster uh, so that they have what they need and, and really kind of accelerating the mature technology that's out there, uh, making sure that that doesn't get uh, caught in what you call the slog of, you know, the process. Um, what are, you, you, you mentioned uh, basically three examples of some move, uh, key, key ways that you can move these, this, this type of technology. Could you talk a little bit about some of the, the, the key p- pathways that you, you use? Right. So backing up just a second, the kind of three fundamental changes in the, in the environment today that's driving this type of thinking uh, I would offer is one, the rapid pace of technology advancement. Uh, because it's so software driven, technology advances extremely rapidly. And two, um, the, the fact that a lot of that technology is out in the commercial space and not in government labs that's applicable to us. That is, those two are, the pace technology always is more rapid each generation, but it is somewhat exponential today. And the fact that most of it resides in commercial space is unique to our lifetimes. 
And then of course the sense of urgency we all talked about. So that's driving uh, a, us to have to do things differently. And so to your question, uh, what you're seeing develop um, across the Department of Defense is a, a model that we're all kind of aligning to that seems to be working to do, to take key technologies that are mature, that are out in the commercial space or within government labs that fit a operational problem or gap problem we have in the operational forces today and then drive movement on that quickly to get it inserted because the rapid pace of technology is so fast, we've got to be able to do that. So these are relatively small things or tier two, tier three injections of algorithms or computers or unmanned, but they're incredibly important and game-changing. And so when you see organizations, when you hear about organizations like DIU, like the SCO, like RCO on the uh, AFWorks for the Air Force, for the Navy Unmanned Task Force, and now as we're scaling that to the uh, Disruptive Capabilities Office, these are all engines, if you will, to do that acceleration inside of Palm. Yeah. So, so um, you know, our, our president, Brian Hinckley, mentioned at the beginning in your intro, he, he was talking a little bit about, you know, Congress is finally wrapping up their budget, uh, their NDAA for the year. And, and it, we're always in conversations with stakeholders across government, Congress, and so forth about funding uh, major priorities and so forth and some of the interests, in, particularly in EW. Um, from your from your perspective, how do you approach balancing, I think the biggest question is, how do you balance inno innovation uh, in, in, in the constant constraints we face in, 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 the, in the budgeting environment and in the competitive environment as well. I mean, there's certainly constraints placed on us based on our adversaries and things that we have to go through. How do you balance that innovation, that need for innovation? Yeah, so, and it is a balance, right? Um, there's, a, I often feel there's a false argument when folks, when you talk about capability versus capacity mm -hmm. as an example, right? It has to be a balance. Uh, on that. We have to maintain the innovation engine. We have to maintain a healthy S&T and R&D effort uh, as that goes. At the same time, we have to keep producing uh, and building actual hardware and equipment. So that's the, the debate that goes mm -hmm. on constantly within the, within the building in order to do that. Um, you know, the Navy over the past few years has been, you know, you've heard uh, CNO talk about CNO Gilday, you know, mm -hmm. Columbia readiness, capability, capacity, kind of thinking in those terms. That will change over time depending on uh, what we're looking at uh, to do. Um, but it is a balance. So, so how do you do it? Very deliberate discussions. They're all going to keep going to some extent. Um, and then you look at the um, the life cycle opportunities, right? So if say in aviation today, aviation, naval aviation is pretty mature. We've got a lot of new iron out there. And so what you see in naval aviation is you have pretty low production numbers and very few um, hot lines, but that's because we just built out our fleet. So where do you put that money? You're putting it in heavy in R&D in order to develop the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a, there's a cycle there. When you look at submarine construction, this is generational, and so you've got a workforce that you have to balance because the submarine designers that have done uh, Columbia, that design's pretty mature, and now you need to start moving them on to the next thing, mm -hmm. right? So there's, 
it's it's complex and no one formula. Yeah. So so from uh, from a technology uh, advancement perspective, you know, what are some of the most critical technologies you see uh, in the Navy right now in the realm of electromagnetic warfare? Yeah. So uh, you know, I think oftentimes it comes down beyond the hardware. It comes down to uh, the spectrum uh, in a lot of ways, right? And so the components for cost-effective spectrum access, right, to be able to get into into that area broadly and at range and these type of things. The uh, I think this is an area that's very ripe for applying machine learning and AI to understand, to analyze the spectrum in a very rapid pace of fight uh, way there. And then I think we're also with that level of uh, complexity that will come with machine learning and AI and the speed, the planning tools and analysis for reacting to both the known and unknown signals uh, within the spectrum, because we're gonna see this become a very, it's always been a dynamic uh, battle space, uh, but it's been a dynamic battle space in terms of days and weeks, and now we're gonna see it in terms of minutes and seconds, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I know you have a busy schedule. And I, just one, one last question. You know, in all of our conversations, we obviously talk a lot about the technology, and you, and you alluded to a lot of it right here, you know, AI and some of the algorithms and so forth. And, and you know, you mentioned injecting um, that technology into the hands of the warfighter. At, at some point, it's always going to be about the people. Um, you know, from your portfolio in, in acquisition and research and development, could you talk a little bit about what motivates you to continue serving in the Navy and, and, and what advice do you give some of the young officers who are going to be responsible basically for using this technology that you're give, putting into their hands uh, to, to face the adversary and to keep America safe? Yeah, thanks for that. I'll give you a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, obviously, I don't think I need to tell anybody it, it's honorable work. Uh, it's service to nation. I think people understand that who are who are in the business, whether military or civilian, uh, to do that. Uh, at my stage now, it's a lot about giving back uh, to the Navy, to the community uh, on that. While you know, I still have an opportunity to do that, so that becomes a, a very personal motivation there. Um, I think it's um, it's fun too, right? I mean, the stuff we do is is, is pretty fun, and uh, I when I give. Um, speeches sometimes with uh, young audiences like at the Naval Academy or something like that or a, a commissioning ceremony. I, I like to talk about something like this. I go, you know, I talk about my career and I go, look, I'm, I'm nothing special. Folks have had much better careers than I, but think of what I've been able to do uh, on this. And just as a, you know, fleet average lieutenant, right, through the course of my career, I've been a fighter pilot. Uh, at the highest levels of mm -hmm. fighter pilot profession. I've been a test pilot uh, and not a test pilot of a Cessna off the line, not if there's anything wrong with that, but a test pilot of brand new fighter and EW aircraft uh, on there at the highest levels of the business. Uh, I was the navigator for Enterprise, assistant navigator Enterprise, learned how to drive a ship and not a tugboat, but mm -hmm. a, the USS Enterprise with eight nuclear reactors and 95,000 tons. So at the highest levels of ship driving, uh, of course, I was a squadron commanding officer. When I became uh, a program manager, you know, as a young, you know, well, relatively young, early 40s type of person, I was managing four and a half billion dollars and sitting across the table from CEOs. Uh, and then I was 
when I did the international thing, I was in the top five international arm dealers in the world uh, with the volume of work I've done uh, on that. And so it just as you, where else do you have the opportunity to work at the highest levels across multiple career fields like mm -hmm. that uh, while progressing through one and serving your nation and doing honorable work? So uh, that to me really kind of, uh, uh, I think uh, kind of sums up why I would do this all over again, why I think a lot of folks uh, would do it. Yeah, throughout my career, you know, about 20 years ago, I would say I had the a great opportunity to spend a few days out on a carrier yeah. and fascinating technology, but just being able to interact with uh, the, 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 the Navy, the seamen out there and then the, the crew and, and how they much how they enjoyed what they did and and and. Uh, saw their energy on a day-to-day -day basis. And then even here at AOC over the years, you know, we, we give awards uh, to, to outstanding uh, units and, and, and to see the, the, the pleasure that they have in serving the country is always just kind of refreshing and energizing. And it's great to see leaders like yourself, you know, here to kind of encourage that to go forward. Yeah, we, you know, we can all learn from each other. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to learn what world-class is from, business, from Silicon Valley, whatever, but, but we can't lose sight of the fact that um, uh, there's a magic that we have as well. And any CEO or any Silicon Valley executive or founder that we ever brought out to the, say the carrier is amazed at how we're able to take 19-year-old kids, mm -hmm. uh, work them as long as we work them, the conditions we work them, and have them orchestrate probably the world's most efficient orchestration of an inherently inefficient operation that you could have <laughs> is running an airport on a boat. And, uh, and, and so we can't forget that magic, right? And uh, just two other points. I, um, uh, I used to, when I was doing the navigator thing, uh, you know, we're four months in cruise and, you know, my sailors on the bridge are getting, you know, bored and monotonous. And I would tell them, I go, on a carrier, we have visitors almost every day we fly out to look. And this is like, to you, a chance of a lifetime to be on an aircraft carrier at sea that's operating. They will remember and talk about this day their mm -hmm. entire lives. And I told them, look, look through their eyes. You have the opportunity to be here every day. I get it, it gets old, but, but it's a magical opportunity in place. And the final thing I'll tell you is that uh, uh, I always remember uh, Alan Mulally, you know, who was, uh, you know, did the triple seven and then CEO of Ford and brought Ford around. He said in his, when he got the Ford, um, he said, Hey, don't undersell your brand. We got a yeah. great brand here. We got a lot of problems, a lot of things to fix, a lot of challenges going forward, but don't undersell the brand. Yep. That's, uh, and that's, that's excellent advice uh, for, for, for the Navy and, and all of us who are engaged in this, in, in this trade space. So, uh, so Ad, Admiral Morley, thanks for taking your time to join me here on From the Crow's Nest. It's great to have an actual conversation with you. I mean, we, it was great to meet you at the webinar um, and great presentation. It was really fun to sit down here and, and learn a little bit more about uh, how you go about your job on a daily basis. So thanks for joining me Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thanks, Ken. It's my pleasure. A lot of fun. All right, I'm here with my next guest, AOC Senior Analyst Matt Thompson. Uh, Matt, great to have you back here on From the Crow's Nest from AOC 2023. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, of course. All right, so I had you on the show yesterday to, to give a little update on, on some of the things that you were hearing on going into day two. 
Uh, we're now at the third and final day. Uh, you attend. You were throughout many of the breakout sessions yesterday, and of course the keynote session today. So wanted to bring you back on the show to get some of your thoughts. Let's start with yesterday, though, on day two uh, in the afternoon. Uh, what were some of the breakout sessions that you attended that uh, you felt really kind of hit home with the message of the theme this year of you know achieving EMS superiority uh, through strategic partnerships and alliances? Yeah, absolutely. So I basically hosted three yesterday, two of them on machine learning and then one on, uh, from Dr. Rafael from Brazil. Uh, so just even having a speaker from another country like talking about those partnerships uh, and the ways that we can work together and new technologies that are out there and how we can kind of build those alliances uh, was really good. So, you know, there's a lot of machine learning, AI kind of driven discussion, how we're gonna compile that data, how we're gonna work together with other countries to kind of build that level uh, of knowledge because, you know, AI and machine learning, they require lots and lots of data. So we have to have like a, a strategic plan of how we're gonna share that information, gather it, and kind of use it to, uh, to our best advantage. And, and that's an interesting point because, you know, one of the things we talked about yesterday was that sometimes, you know, when we talk about advanced technology, it's easy to look just inside and inward into what we're doing at home. But there's so much expertise and so much uh, rapid development in technology, particularly in the AI front around the world. Um, some of them are, you know, well-known allies and partners, you know, through NATO or something. But then there's other countries that, you know, are making very strategic advances in this technology and can... Uh, form the basis of a new partnership that we need to be pursuing. Um, in terms of this, this technology of AI and machine learning and, 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 and what's on the horizon, how important is it to uh, engage some of these uh, other countries that we might not, might not come to mind? And, and what did you learn about how uh, ubiquitous some of this new uh, advancement in AI is, is becoming? Yeah, so one of the uh, speakers yesterday talked about, like, you know, kind of a junk in, junk out scenario, right? So we have to have really good prompts. Uh, and, you know, right now the prompts are probably varying the way that we're using them from country to country. Um, and we want to get to a point where those prompts are auto-generated. So we have to have some alignment on what those prompts are. What are we trying to do with that data? How do we compile it the same way? Do we actually want the same information? Um, and I think that, you know, that got spoken about a little bit this morning from the NATO lecture, right? So. You know, we have, you know, there are 31 countries that want different things, but we have to try to find some alignment or some common ground, like in those prompts, in that data. How do we want to use it? Are we using it the same as, as our strategic partner, uh, our partners? Possibly not. So, yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned today's keynoters. I'm going to be sitting down with uh, Lieutenant General, retired Air Force uh, Lance Landrum later today. Uh, we'll be airing that interview in our final episode of From the Crow's Nest on our regular programming here in a couple weeks. Um, but obviously, he, he followed on with uh, he followed this onto the stage after Vice Admiral Francis Morley of the Navy. Uh, what were some of the, the the points that were made this morning's keynote in, in this morning's keynote speakers uh, that kind of hit home to you? Yeah, so I think that the the one that really I, I thought was the factor and really aligned the most with the conference is you know the the need for those countries to prioritize electronic warfare, right? So it's not enough to just talk about it in the NATO building. It's not enough for just to talk about it leadership. Like we need, uh, and that same thing is true here, right? We need it to be a priority. We need, uh, you know, Congress, the Senate, like hey, by the EW has to be a priority. You know, we had the Secretary of the Navy here yesterday talking about it, how he's making it a priority. Um, but, you know, the political side, we have to keep that at the forefront to get the funding, to be able to get those partners to work together. Uh, so I think that was a really good key takeaway from his, his speech this morning. 
in, in terms of some of the other uh, meetings that you've been a part of or, or, or sessions that you've uh, uh, participated in, what are some other things outside of uh, of just the uh, the keynoters as well as the technical panel that uh, some of the messages or some of the, the, the topics that were discussed that are of interest to you? Yeah, so I think the one that I found, I was pretty much aware, but like it even came more to the forefront. Um, so it's not just so much like country strategy partners, but like, you know, uh, what I heard as I walked around many booths is just interoperability, right? Mm -hmm. So we have like a lot of amazing and different tools uh, that arguably don't talk to each other enough. And, you know, crossing and bridging that gap is difficult. Um, like, how do we get those things to talk together better? Like, how do we create requirements where they're, like, all the cool tools we can put in the toolbox uh, and actually have them as a cohesive unit? Do, do we have to uh, jump on the interoperability uh, problem earlier in development? I mean, we it, it is a requirement. We hear about it all the time. We have to be interoperable. We have to be interoperable. But it always feels like it's, you know, sometimes we, we don't really address the interoperability question until we're ready to field it later on in development. Is, is, were there any ideas or plans or solutions out there or opportunities to actually kind of get this started earlier in the development process? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, my opinion is probably a little jaded on this. One, I love living in a capitalist country. And so some of the interoperability stuff we drive by, you know, different vendors competing for that. So, you know, I think one of the ways that you start to solve that problem is, you know, we have to do things as a government to encourage interoperability, right? We, we have to not reward all the time you keeping your secrets from them. Like, we need to encourage, hey, by the way, we're going to reward you both if you guys make this box work faster, you know, write more creative contracts, do that much early in the procurement process, mm -hmm. uh, you know, write the requirements. Hey, by the way, it would be much better if you guys work together than really rewarding, you know, you working independently. Um, and, and that kind of gets to the open systems architecture problem. I know that was a session yesterday as well. Um, you know, that, that's moving very rapidly, uh, and obviously it opens up different pathways that the services can follow. Vice Admiral uh, Morley talked about some of those pathways this morning. Um, looking forward, you know, how, how do you see the open systems conversation taking place? Yeah, so I think, um, I think that it's going to have to start small, right? So. You know, I think some of the smaller vendors are going to have to work together. Like, I think it's, in my opinion, going to take longer for the, the, big, the big companies to get on board with that program. You know, the ones that have lots of departments and many floors and buildings, you know, that's going to take a lot of, like, strategy and discussion. But I think it's going to be easier. If, like, we have the small business showcase down in the corner. Like, it's going to be much easier for them to get on board with that because it's more rewarding. They're going to get contracts faster, more business, uh, and they're going to be rewarded for that kind of open system approach. Right. Well, well, I want to thank you for taking time to, to join me here on uh, from the crow's nest here at the convention. I look forward to sitting down with you more regularly next year in 2024 when we start our subscriber package and, and, and doing uh, regular analysis episodes that uh, our subscribers can actually participate in and ask you questions and have a, a live conversation. So I think it'll be a, a great opportunity to, to kind of move that conversation forward next year. So thanks for taking time and joining me here on from the crow's nest. Absolutely looking forward to it. Thanks, Ken. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guests, Vice Admiral Francis Morley, U.S. Navy, and AOC Senior Analyst Matt Thompson for joining me here on Day 3 of AOC 2023. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today, and that's it from AOC 2023. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening.
FastLabs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.